0: Taking it to a
1: do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network, and podcast on the internet at BZE.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Show. My name is Kay Winningale, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Natalie Buckmore. Hi, Kay. How are you? Very good. Got some sad news today to tell you. Jennifer Bates, the coordinator of the Newcastle Chapter of BZE, has died after being struck down in a hit and run accident on her way to work. She was a thirty six year old architect and a passionate environmentalist, and a few years ago she won the government's Women in Building Award. I got to know Jen earlier this year when we stayed with her at the Newcastle Anti-Coal protest, and I found her to be, as her husband Geordie has described, a very honest and beautiful soul. She had a particular passion for solar energy, educating the local community and showing everyone what was possible. In 2014, she and Geordie volunteered for international development projects in Bhutan and she compiled a fascinating blog about her experiences there. She was a very unassuming person and it seemed the more I found out about her, the more there was to find out. Australia's environmental community has lost a very special person and a tireless worker. Our hearts go out to Geordie and family. Okay, on to this show. Today we welcome back Sarah Bice, who consults, educates, and researches on sustainable development and corporate social responsibility. Regular listeners may remember her enlightening talk earlier this year on social licence and how it applies to mining. She's Director, Research Translation at the Melbourne School of Government, the University of Melbourne, and is the co-chair of the International Association for the Impact Assessments Corporate Stewardship and Risk Management section. She's been spending a lot of time recently researching the effects of a Trump presidency in America, and is here to tell us how the climate will be affected by this event. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Hi, Kay. Hi, Nat. Thanks for having me, and my condolences on the loss of your colleague.
1: That's terribly mm. tra- tragic. Thank you very much. It was an incredibly tragic event. Yeah, and, um, I'm very sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's um, it's sad when you know one of the good people um, has a tragic end like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: especially at a time when we really need climate champions.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and she and her husband were fantastic in that area. So that's um, it's very distressing, I think, for the whole community in Newcastle particularly, mm. but also Australia-wide because she was doing good work elsewhere as well and yeah. certainly was well-known in, in the ACT. So um, let's talk about this presidential nominee, Donald Trump, and he, who actually said very little about climate change during the election campaign. He did aggressively court pro-coal and pro-oil voters on the campaign trail and his early appointments indicated a willingness to follow through with his promise to remove regulatory burdens from the fossil fuel industry. But we've mostly had to rely on his numerous pre candidacy tweets declaring it a bullshit hoax. But early in November, Trump finally did say something about climate change, that he would cut all federal spending on the issue to save $100 billion over two terms in office. Can you give us an idea of how the internal U.S. Policies and regulations and likely to pan out? Well,
0: the problem with Trump is that we really don't know. This is a person whose position seems to change based on whim and Twitter and false news. So, we had, for example, a meeting between Trump and Al Gore at the now infamous Trump Towers in New York (laughs) City on the 5th of December. And it was fascinating to watch the spread of news immediately after this meeting. There was finally some glimmer of hope in the sky. The sun was going to shine through. Um, He seemed to take Al Gore's advice. He seemed to be saying, I'm open to thinking about the need for climate change mitigation. And there were even uh, statements made that perhaps now the campaign promise to, quote, cancel the Paris agreement uh, would be thought about, and perhaps even backtracked upon. So this was the 5th of December. And then almost immediately after Trump began announcing through his transition team, his appointments to the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department mm-hmm. of Energy, the Department of Interior, uh, the Secretary of State, and just, the list Just goes when you on. thought it was safe
1: to get back into the water.
0: <laughs> just when we thought, thank goodness Al Gore has gone to Trump Towers, Um There was a quick turnaround and a turnaround that was um, more, I suppose, uh, suggestive of where he stands on climate change mitigation than a happy diplomatic meeting with someone who has worked very hard for climate change mitigation. So what does the Trump presidency potentially mean for environmental regulation in the United States? Let's look a little bit towards recent appointments and what those offices mean in terms of how the United States approaches environmental protection and climate change mitigation. The Environmental Protection Agency, for example, is the primary agency for the protection of clean air and water in the United States. And Trump declared in his campaign that he wanted to shut down the EPA, and he is very strongly anti-environmental regulation. And that is reflected in his appointment of Scott Pruitt as EPA chief. Scott Pruitt, um, the former attorney general from Oklahoma, has been someone who's been very heavily involved in litigation led primarily by the fossil fuel industry against climate change regulation and has himself been someone who has litigated against environmental protection regulation. So that's the EPA. And we even saw recently that there was a... 74-point questionnaire circulated by Trump's transition team to EPA staff, many of whom are climate scientists. And this questionnaire was asking those staff to detail the names of any EPA staff who had attended climate change-related conferences or who had written climate change-related papers for those conferences. Now, the current... It's
1: frightening, isn't it? it?
0: It's a bit McCarthyism, so maybe now climate change in the United States becomes the new communism. We don't really know what this questionnaire was intended to do, but what we do know is that the current public servants who head the EPA refuse to provide the names of any individuals. So we can definitely see an agenda where Mm. climate
1: change is being questioned. It certainly makes people think twice about doing anything or saying anything or being the slightest bit controversial.
0: Or perhaps it's going to make people be more assertive and more controversial. So, for example, the current Attorney General of New York State um, has come out to say, I will use all of the power of the law that is within my remit to fight against any suggested changes to EPA regulation. And so we are already starting to see people in powerful positions come out against even the potential of backlash against um, an EPA whose regulatory power is reduced or whose ability to protect clean air and water in America is threatened. And
1: so maybe we'll see more activism. Well, that's right. I mean, generally, Americans don't want anything to um, affect the clean air and water, do they? That, that's always been very strong for them, a strong issue.
0: Since, since the Great Depression, <clears throat> excuse me this morning, since the Great Depression, we have had a commitment in America to national parks. So that was a program started um, primarily after the Great Depression as a means of protecting American land and as a means of creating uh, conservation areas. Now, that particular protection of those national parks falls under the Department of Interior. And what's interesting here is we also have Trump suggesting um, a person for Department of Interior who is very pro-fossil fuels and who has said he's quite happy to dig, dig, dig. So when we think about um, how America holds pristine national parks in high regard. It's known for the Grand Canyon. It's known for Yosemite. It's known for the lands in northern Alaska, where if any of us are lucky to go, we'll see some amazing scenery that's probably not available anywhere else in the world anymore. Um, but by appointing Ryan Zink, a former Montana Republican, to oversee energy exploration and national parks, both of which fall under the Department of Interior regulation. Um, we're certainly seeing someone in that role who may pursue Trump's pro-drilling agenda um, and his argument of energy independence.
1: So he, he's pro-drilling.
0: He, he certainly is. Um, he it has talked in the past about the need um, to make America energy independent. And so part of this notion that's coming from um, the Republicans and from the Trump transition team is that America is too dependent on foreign countries. And we can see this particular position spread across a lot of the Trump dialogue in terms of policies generally so what we see about anti-china about his claims of wanting to bring more manufacturing back to the united states those similar style of claims are reflected in his environmental stances where he's saying we need energy independence and the way that his transition team see to achieve that is to both build more refineries within the United States and also to have a reinvigoration of the American coal industry. And certainly Ryan Zink, from what we know of him, would be someone who would be quite supportive of that. So so would, would he face pretty significant backlash, though, if any of that threatened national parks? facilities. You'd certainly hope so, Nat. I mean, I'd love to see Yosemite stay Yosemite. I don't know how much oil there is there to dig or if we've even explored for it, but you'd you'd hope that we would see backlash and protection. One of the things that we can look to as well is whether or not some of these statements being made by Trump, particularly about his desire to bring back the refineries, and this was a statement that he made on his kind of Thank you tour uh, post the election. He's in Oklahoma and he said, we're going to bring back the refineries. We're going to have energy independence for America. So even if we didn't have the regulatory protections that we do have, let's say there was a perfect storm where you get Scott Pruitt into the EPA. He starts to reduce clean air and water acts. We have Ryan Zink in the Department of Interior and he starts to pull back on protection of national parks. Even if those things occurred, we could then look to Donald Trump's favorite mechanism, the market, to question whether drilling would actually occur. And if we look at the American refinery situation, America currently has the largest number of refineries in the entire world. There are 141 operable refineries in the United States. 139 of those are actually in operation Um, And it was only in 2012, under the Obama administration, that the first new refinery in 30 years was approved. So there's really not a strong economic argument for more refineries, and particularly given that each refinery um, holds an estimated capital investment cost of $10 billion. Well, mm. Yeah, that's really going to be a barrier You would think so Did Maybe he, Trump will pay for it himself
1: <laughs> Well, he's selling off his businesses, isn't he? Or he's moving well, back from his businesses And getting his sons and daughters to run them, as far as I know
0: Look, hey, I think the issue there is We don't actually know which businesses are necessarily his And we certainly haven't seen a tax return to assist oh, us true. in that endeavour
1: <laughs> Just getting back to your previous point The US is already increasingly able to produce its own energy and in 2013 it surpassed Saudi Arabia and Russia to become the world's biggest producer of petroleum products. And around a quarter of its oil only is now imported, the lowest figure since 1970. So it's already doing incredibly well. Does it have to do that much more?
0: So this is a question that I think applies across the, the Trump campaign and across the Trump discourse because there have been a lot of claims made throughout the campaign that those of us who have investigated those claims know to be untrue. So things about uh, unemployment levels in America, all of the statements around people being unable to walk down the street in the inner cities without being shot, if you actually look at the figures that relate to those issues, unemployment in America is under Barack Obama at the lowest levels since President Clinton. It's lower when, than Australia. And it is lower than Australia. So some of these claims being made um, we need to look at. And similar claims are occurring around the energy And energy-independent space. So Trump is getting a lot of populist buy-in to his statements that America doesn't need to be reliant on these other countries and that we shouldn't be paying Saudi Arabia and so on and so forth. But when we look at the facts and figures, the United States is, as you say, in its most energy-independent position in many decades. It has a thriving shale gas industry. So it has liquefied natural gas, oil and petroleum are at a good rate. And there has been a steady decline in coal production and coal use in America. And under the Clean Power Plan, which was introduced by the Obama administration, there has since his uh, 2012 election been a 30-fold increase in solar generation in the United States. And that has been um, complemented by a 12 times faster growth of jobs in the solar industry. So jobs in the solar industry in the United States are growing 12 times faster than the rest of the economy. And across the board, there is a commitment to provide one gigawatt of solar energy to all low to middle income American households by 2020. In addition, there is a commitment to a tenfold increase in renewables nationally by 2020. So America is rolling when Mm. it comes to energy right now.
1: Certainly sounds like it. For those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and we're talking to Sarah Bice about the current and future climate change prospects under a Trump presidency. Now, just before um, you made that point about how we're going in terms of renewables, Can we start talking about the Paris Agreements and what the implications are there?
0: Yeah, so during the campaign, Trump um, said that he was going to, quote, cancel the Paris Agreement. Again, we have to go to the facts. Can any president of the United States cancel the Paris Agreement? The answer is a flat no. You cannot fully withdraw from the Paris Agreement until you have a four-year Waiting period, and this was part th- of the agreement that was written in. Um, now, could the United States wiggle out of this potentially? But only after 12 months. This is even be-
1: before they've ratified it.
0: Once you've ratified, once you've ratified. So once you've ratified, there is a four-year period which prevents withdrawal. From that's good the agreement. for
1: Australians to know that.
0: Yeah, I think absolutely. So Australia has ratified. Australia actually ratified the day after the trump election now whether or not those two things were related we don't know but it was certainly made me feel a bit happy in a time of personal despair Mm. um but there can be no full withdrawal until a four-year period from ratification has been met in the united states should the trump administration and we know he's very good at loopholes should the trump administration attempt to drop out of the paris agreement what they could do um, is in 12 months from his taking office, they could attempt to drop out from the Climate Convention under which the Paris Agreement operates. But even then, it would be a very, very difficult task to remove the United States from the agreement. The other component of this, however, is that the Paris Agreement as it currently stands is not really enforceable. It was an agreement that was made very much in goodwill. And President Barack Obama played a very strong leadership role in getting it over the line. When Trump was elected, it was of great concern to climate scientists and politicians globally. And when the United Nations met in late November in Marrakesh on climate change issues, one of the first things that they did was to agree to put through very rapidly a guideline for implementation of the Paris Agreement. And this was going to be a step-by-step list of requirements for practical steps that Paris Agreement signatories must take. And they've now committed to having those guidelines ready by 2018. So, for a large international body, you kind of think 2018. Oh my goodness! But that for seems them, a long way yeah, I agree, Nat. But for them, it's uh, "quote unquote" rapid. <laughs> so we are seeing some movements in the international community already, um, which will attempt to shore up the Paris Agreement and to make more explicit the requirements of signatory nations.
1: Okay. So, in terms of Australia's position, we've got four years that we we can feel secure that we will continue with our Paris agreements. But in terms of America, though, um, all bets are off, really.
0: We may see that all bets are off in America. And then in my opinion, it's going to become a heavily political issue. And this is where I think the American public's position on climate change is going to be particularly important. So if we look globally, we know that in 67% of countries, your individual belief in climate change and climate science is most closely linked to the level of education that you've attained. So the more education you have, the more likely you are to believe that we need to do something about climate change, and we need to do it straight away. In the United States, however, your belief in climate change is more closely linked and indeed most closely linked to your political party affiliation or your position on the conservative to liberal small L spectrum. So 41% of Republicans, and these are primarily white college educated, middle class, upper middle class males, 41% of Republicans do not believe that climate change is occurring or or question climate science. 57% of conservatives on that spectrum do not believe that climate change is happening and do not trust climate science. So for the United States, I think the important question is, what will it mean for a country where climate change ideals and belief in climate science are so closely linked to your political perspective when you have a president and an administration who are very actively pursuing a discourse, which suggests that climate change is a hoax, that climate change um, is something that has been made up. So for example, Rick Perry, who's going to head up the Environmental Protection Agency, he wrote a book in 2010, and it was called Fed Up, Our Fight to Save America from Washington. And in that book, He called climate change, quote, a contrived, phony mess. And so my concern politically is that if you have a range of leaders from different agencies, many of which are tasked with protecting the environment, if we have these leaders saying that climate change is a phony mess, that it's just made up by the Chinese to stymie American manufacturing, that we need to go back to fossil fuels... I'm concerned about the flow-on effects through the American public, and then the feedback loop that would take us into a situation where people are actually starting to fully question climate science and to move away from some of the progress that's been made, even mm. if a lot of that progress has been less than what we might hope for.
1: So, so oh, sorry.
0: Uh, so, uh, just, I was just wondering. So, that you know, talking about um, the cabinet and the views within cabinet and Trump. How about you know, another part of government. What about in Congress? Are these will Trump be fully supported in Congress in in these views and, and appointments? It's a great question, Nat, and it's a really scary situation because, as we know, the Republicans rolled the Democrats in this election, and so Trump is going to go into his presidency with both houses of Congress with Republican majorities, and that is a somewhat scary situation, I think, for environmental protection um, and for protection or for progress against climate change mitigation. And I say that because similarly to where we started this discussion, you know, Trump seems to change his position well the Republican party has been quite happy to change their position on Trump. That was the on other part Trump. of my question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if if we were back in the campaign and we were in a state where people thought still that Hillary might win, um, and I will just point out here that she did actually win the popular vote by by 2 million votes and that the number of votes which Trump took home at the end of the day at 60.5 million were actually less in number. Than the 60.9 million that Mitt Romney gained against Barack Obama in 2012 and still lost. Yes. So I just want to make that point.
1: (laughs) And and she had the highest number of votes for a losing candidate.
0: Yes. So Hillary had the highest number of votes ever for a losing candidate. Um, She was 2 million votes ahead, approximately, in the popular vote. And she came very close at about 64.233 million to Barack Obama's 65 million popular votes. But we have the Electoral College and she didn't win. And the point that I was going to make was if we were back in the midst of the campaign, when the Republican Party was starting to say, never Trump, he's not our candidate. um, There's been a major shift in rhetoric and approval now. And I think that we will see that shift carried through to Republican support for Trump-backed policies, including environmental policies.
1: Yeah. So there is a figure going around, though, that 71% of Americans do believe in climate change, and there are some states that are very actively promoting renewables and doing their best, you know, California and even Texas. So can you... Tell me what, or tell our listeners what the influence of the states may be in this situation.
0: Yeah, so the influence of the states is going to be quite important because one of the reasons that Trump got in was on this kind of drain the swamp, get the politicians out of Washington, really anti-big government campaign. And in the United States, there tends to be a very strong feeling that we just want to be left alone to do our own thing. We have a federalist system, but at the same time, it is a highly devolved, decentralized system which gives the states a lot of power. On the one hand, this might be a positive thing for climate change mitigation because you are very likely to have states, democratic states, democratic leaning states like New York and California, who Pursue climate change mitigation, who attempt to set the example through renewable energy policies, through clean air and water policies. So these things could be really positive. At the same time, however, even within the rhetoric of we want to be independent and do our own thing as states, if you have a federal government, a president, and a Congress who are clearing the way and providing political capital for an anti-climate change mitigation regulation or series of policies, then that gives
1: those states even more freedom to follow suit. Mm, Very true. Rex Tillerson is Secretary of State, and he actually was the CEO of ExxonMobil for many, many years And so he's travelled around and negotiated with its leaders. And the good thing about it is that ExxonMobil, even though it pollutes most of wherever it goes, has acknowledged the science of climate change. He will be a serious threat or not?
0: So the thing with Rex Tillerson is that um, I suppose, firstly... He has not yet been confirmed, and there are some major questions around human rights and climate change. So he's a bit of a wait and see. But one thing that we can say is ExxonMobil, as a company under Rex Tillerson, has supported – a Carbon tax. At the same time, however, the UK based NGO Influence Map gives ExxonMobil a grade of E minus on a scale of A to F. So they got an E minus on its scale of corporations that support climate
1: change mitigation. Okay, so not good.
0: Um, not we've good. Just <laughs> unfortunately, run
1: out of time, Sarah. As usual with you, we've just got too much to talk about. We've been talking to Sarah Bice about the state of climate change in America under a Trump presidency. Thanks so much for your time today, Sarah. Thanks, Kay. Thanks, Nat. Where can our listeners find out a little bit more?
0: We can look to the School of Government website at government.unimelb.edu.au or on Twitter at Sarah underscore Bice.
1: Great. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia. If you want to listen to this show or others, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and hopefully we'll catch you again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a
0: growing... Demand for industrial photovoltaics, pumped innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train
1: is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.